I'm Maria, and welcome to the 3L podcast series, Limited Liability Leadership, Raising the Bar in Leading the Bar. Thanks for checking out our upcoming limited podcast series developed and produced by Class 8 of the W.N. Reese Smith Jr. Leadership Academy program of the Florida Bar. Hello, and welcome to the Limited Liability Leadership Podcast. My name is Rob Holborn, an associate with Deba Voice in Fulton, PA in Orlando, Florida. I'm a member of the Florida Bar Leadership Academy Class 8, and I will be your host today as we talk with four of my classmates about financial literacy as part of the Raising the Bar and Leading the Bar series. Now, before we get into the details of today's podcast, I want to remind our listeners that we are not financial planning professionals, just a few lawyers who have learned a few things along the way. The goal of this podcast is to introduce you to financial topics that you need to have a basic understanding of. Not only will these topics be something that you have to navigate in your own life, but leadership is not just constrained to the law, but assisting your fellow attorneys and others navigate life. We hope that after our discussions today, you will feel more comfortable with these topics of finance and that you will be encouraged to learn more. Let's start today's podcast with personal finances. To discuss the three key areas of personal finances, budgets, debt, and savings, I am joined by Tiffany Hilton, a consultant with MetLife in Tampa, and Casey Hampton, an associate at Carlton Fields in Tampa. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Rob. Great to be here. Hey, Rob. Happy to be here. Great. Now, Tiffany, when I say budgets, what we are really talking about is tracking how much money we're spending, right? Yes. So why should we frame this as a budget and not just as spending? Well, budgeting can sometimes sound scarier than it is. When I first started getting serious about my financial goals and knowing that I needed to make a budget, I thought that I would not be able to enjoy life as much as I do now. I thought that I was going to have to be very mindful of certain spending activities of mine, but I was wrong. Making a budget is simply giving every dollar I make a place in my budget. To help make budgeting easier, I've set realistic goals about how I want my budget to look and how I want to track the money that I'm spending. Now, are there any apps or websites that can help in making a budget easier? Yes. So making a budget and tracking what you're spending are two different things, and there's apps that will actually help you do both. There are numerous popular apps, but the one of my personal preference is called You Need a Budget. You Need a Budget has an app and it has a web-based platform that allows you to sync your accounts, add a budget, and then you can either auto-organize your transactions or you can manually add transactions as you're in a store, at the gas station, so on and so forth. I've used this platform for many years and I have found it extremely easy and user-friendly to be able to know how much money I have coming in, how much money is going out and giving every dollar I make an assigned place. Now, there is a fee for you need a budget. However, there are some free apps such as Mint and Every Dollar, which both come highly rated and might work well for anyone who's interested. That sounds great. Now, when I first put a budget together, do you have any recommendations on how to succeed when we're first starting out? Yes. When you first start making a budget, 
I would recommend you actually start with a spending freeze. A spending freeze will allow you to look at how much you're spending on necessities first. This will tell you with the amount of money that you make, are you making enough to cover your basic necessities? This will give you a realistic view of the cost of living. I've done a 30-day spending freeze, and during that time, I did not buy anything that was not essential. I know that sometimes as we earn more money, we can sometimes have a creep-in lifestyle. However, if we spend money in accordance to what we need versus how much we make, we can avoid that lifestyle creep and living beyond our means. Great. So I'm ready to make a budget. How do I figure out how much I should be spending in each of these different areas? Well, now that you're actually ready to start making a budget, from my research when I was working on mine, I have found across the board that the 50-30-20 rule is a good rule to follow. This means that 50% of your income goes to your living expenses and necessities, 30% goes towards the things that you may want, and 20% goes towards your debt and savings goals. Thank you, Tiffy, for helping us out with setting up a budget. You know, Casey, I feel like you got the side of personal finance I dread the most. The biggest portion of my budget when I was first an attorney was debt from school loans, and I never thought about saving any money. Yes, almost all new law school graduates can relate to that, but you have to develop a good grasp on the basics, savings, and debt uh, to set yourself up for success. So what are some of the ways that we can get that debt paid off as quickly as possible? So for starters, even before you start aggressively paying down debt, it's a good rule of thumb to keep three to six months expenses in a high yield savings account as an emergency fund. So this is different than the money you are using, for instance, to save up a down payment on a house or to buy a new car. This is the money you're going to live on if you lose your job or find yourself in an unexpected crisis. Uh, don't feel daunted. I know three to six months sounds like a lot, um, but don't feel intimidated by saving up this much cash. Just make it a line item in your budget, like Tiffany just described, and you'll get to your target amount without investing much thought. Now, for the debt side of the budget, let's start, uh, like you said, Rob, with student loans specifically. For some people, refinancing student loans makes sense as an early step toward repayment. Uh, refinancing is when you take out a new loan to replace an old loan or group of loans. You should consider refinancing your student loans if you can find a lower interest rate and you want to merge some or all of your student loan payments into one. While refinancing is a good idea in many cases, though, it's not best for everyone, uh, especially those people who need to take advantage of federal student loan protections or forgiveness programs. If you're sure you don't plan to take advantage of any federal protections or forgiveness programs, you should shop uh, to see if you can find a lender who will offer you an interest rate lower than your current rate. And if you're successful at that, it'll save you money almost instantly since the interest portion of every loan payment you make is going to decrease. Also, note that most student loan programs do not penalize you for early repayment. Uh, so this means that when you're carving out the portion of your budget to allocate to student loans, you should try to allocate as much as you can over the minimum payment to pay that loan off quickly. And that advice actually applies to most types of debt, whether it's credit card debt or your car loan. Uh, paying more than the minimum payment, if you have the extra funds, is the quickest way to become debt-free. 
Now, Casey, now you just talked about other kinds of debt. Now, how do I figure out, you know, where to, to start paying those off? As a general strategy, you should try organizing your debts in a list with the highest interest rate at the top and then make an effort to pay off that highest interest rate debt first, then the next one and so on. This is going to save you the most money over the course of your ultimate repayment journey. Uh, And finally, when you make it to the last loan on your list and, and you're finally out of debt, stay out of debt. Like Tiffany said, avoid the lifestyle creep. Try to pay cash for everything you need to buy. Don't finance purchases except as a last resort for essential items. Well, that's some great advice. Thank you, Tiffany and Casey. I think that was a really helpful introduction to personal finance. But we do need to talk about something that affects all of us all the time, and that's interest rates. And with me is another classmate, Richard Oppleton, who is an assistant city attorney with the city of Miami, who is here to give us some interesting points on interest. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Um, so I'm going to give you the quick and dirty basics of interest rates because, quite frankly, uh, you can write a dissertation on this subject and time is short. So the first thing you need to know is that interest uh, an interest rate is a lending concept. The term principal means the amount of money loaned to the borrower and the interest rate is the percentage of principal charged by the lender for the use of its money. Interest rates affect the cost of loans and as a result, they can speed up or slow down the economy which is why you hear the chairman of the Federal Reserve talk about this concept all the time, especially lately. Okay, so Richard, can you give us an example uh, you know, for our listeners that illustrate how interest rates work? Sure. Um, so if you borrowed $5,000, let's say, at a simple interest rate of 3% for five years, you'd pay $750 in interest. So how did I get there? Simple interest is determined by multiplying the daily interest rate by the principal by the number of days that elapsed between payments. So here's how interest rates work. The bank applies an interest rate to the total unpaid portion of your loan or credit card balance, and you must pay at least the interest in each period. If not, your outstanding debt will increase even though you're still making payments. Banks charge higher rates if they think there's a lower chance the debt will be repaid. For that reason, banks tend to assign higher interest rates to revolving loans, such as credit cards. Banks also charge higher interest rates to people that they think are more risky. Uh, The higher your credit score, for instance, the lower the interest rate you'll be charged. The same concept applies for savings savings accounts. Savings accounts earn interest because banks, whether you know it or not, use the money in your savings account to lend to other customers. Now, Richard, our listeners might be familiar with fixed interest rates because their homes may be financed by a a 30-year fixed mortgage rate. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about fixed rates and the alternatives? Sure. It's a great question. Um, So a fixed rate remains the same throughout the life of the loan, just as as it sounds. Initially, your payments consist mostly of interest payments, but as time goes on, you pay a higher percentage of the debt principal. Variable rates are a little different. Variable variable rates fluctuate over time uh, because the rate is based on an underlying benchmark interest rate or an index that changes throughout time or periodically. Now, earlier you talked about the Federal Reserve, and lately I've read a lot about their decision to keep interest rates low. Can you talk about what that means for those listening today? Sure. So uh, high interest rates make loans more expensive. When interest rates are high, fewer people and businesses can afford to borrow. Low interest rates have the opposite effect on the economy. Borrowing costs are cheaper, which encourages consumer and business spending and investment. Uh, So 
I'm, I'm wrapping up. And the last thing I want to mention is compound interest because it's a buzzword. And I feel like a lot of people uh, want to know about that. So compound interest is interest on a loan or deposit that's calculated based on both the initial principal and the accumulated interest from previous periods. So think of it as interest on interest. The best way to understand this concept is by giving an example. So let's say you, the listener, deposited $1 million into an interest-bearing account. I wish. Compounded 10% <laughs> annually. Right. Uh, compounded 10% annually. You would have $1.1 million after the first year. After year two, what the $1.1 million would become $1.21 million and so on. After seven years, that amount would be $1.948 million or nearly double the original amount. Leave it in there for 43 years and it would be close to $64 million. The problem with my example is that 10% returns on interest-bearing accounts are a thing of the past as Rob alluded to. So my example is purely for uh, illustrative purposes. Uh, for instance, the highest CD rates in modern history occurred around the start of the 1980s where a three-month CD or a certificate of deposit uh, could earn over 18%. By comparison, today's six-month CD rate is less than 1%. Thanks, Richard. I feel like after hearing you and Casey talk, I need to go online and check out some interest rates on a student loan refi. But before I go Googling for a refi deal, I have one more topic and classmate to bring in. Uh, Leonardo Concepcion is the owner of Concepcion Law in Miami, and he is here to talk insurance. Welcome to the show, Leonardo. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Now, Leonardo, one of the things that I have learned during my time as an attorney is that insurance is very important to people, but especially to businesses. What types of insurance is helpful for us to know about? Absolutely, Rob. So there's a lot of different insurance options, right? And that can you know, vary on what you need based on what the kind of business you're in. But three of the most kind of basic ones that any business owner should consider and that I want to talk about are general liability policies, uh, professional malpractice or professional liability policies, and workers' comp insurance. So turning to that first one, these are usually called commercial general liability policies or CGLs for short. These are the policies that are usually the most basic that a business owner wants to have, right? Because what are they going to cover? They're going to cover our, our businesses for any kind of injuries that may happen on our premise, right? So, you know, we're all attorneys here. So a client comes over to our office and God forbid they slip on something, hurt themselves, trip over a floorboard. They want to get you compensated for their injuries. A CGL policy would step in there, potentially protect the business from that claim and potentially pay out any claims uh, or liabilities that are, you're ultimately responsible for. The same goes for property damage. Let's say I've got my candle going on at the office. I forget to turn it off before I leave for the day. And hey, a fire breaks out. I damage my unit and the next door unit. Now that next door unit is going to look at me and say, hey, you left that candle on. I need to be recompensed for my damages. That CGL policy is going to step in there, potentially defend the business and pay any liabilities for the property damage to that other business. So a CGL policy is a basic policy that every business owner should consider and potentially have for their business because, as we know, any of these claims can potentially bankrupt the business if they're not covered. The next one, I would say, is malpractice or what's called professional liability insurance. This insurance is more specific to certain industries. Lawyers, of course, are going to be one that 
always want to make sure that they have malpractice or professional liability insurance, but also doctors, accountants, any of the professional trades want to look into these kinds of insurance because any claims for professional negligence won't be covered by the policy I just spoke about, the CGL. So this is where a professional liability or malpractice would step in. So keeping the examples in the world of attorneys, right? You miss a statute of limitations, you give bad legal advice, and hey, that unhappy client comes back and now wants to go after you for damages due to your bad advice or missing a, uh, a deadline or something like that. Your professional liability, your malpractice insurance is going to come in there, protect you and your business from those kinds of claims. And the last one, Rob, that I think any business owner needs to consider is workers' compensation insurance. In Florida, any business that has four more employees is required to have this kind of insurance. So this covers a business if an employee is injured while on the job. Hey, I've, you know, I've got a law clerk. He hurts his back picking up a ream of paper or he trips over something and injures himself while on the job. He's entitled to now be recompensed for his lost wages, his medical expenses or any potential disability. And this is where workers' compensation insurance is going to come in and protect the business and potentially pay that employee for their lost wages, their medical bills, and their disability. Without this insurance, my business or your business is going to be on the hook for these things without, you know, without any coverage. So these are kind of the three main insurances that any business owner should really consider um, to protect their business and make sure that they're covered from potential claims. Excellent. Well, thank you, Leonardo, for that primer on insurance. And that is the end of today's podcast. On behalf of my fellow classmates, Tiffany, Casey, Richard, and Leonardo, and the rest of the Leadership Academy Class 8, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, check out more from the Raising the Bar and Leading the Bar podcast series, where some of our classmates are hosting podcasts on retirement, access to justice in low-income communities, conversations with bar leaders, and more on the Limited Liability Leadership Podcast feed. Thank you.